Okay, so we have this section here in Acts. And uh, again, like I even alluded to when, when we're singing and we're talking about the spirit that lives in us and it's our victory of it, right? I just love that. And, uh, and we have this part here in Acts, chapter one at the end, that is before the spirit comes, the Holy Spirit. It's before Acts chapter two. However, it follows this incredible moment as well, right? Where Jesus is here with his disciples. They're on the Mount of Olives or Olivet. And, and Jesus is all of a sudden like taken away. He ascends, right? It's this incredible moment. And the disciples are left there just like gazing up to the sky. And prior to that moment, Jesus says this to the disciples. He says, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, which is the Holy Spirit. It's going to come upon you. God, the Holy Spirit's going to come to you. And it's going to come, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, in power, right? And so then they're left just gazing up to the heavens. What do you think the next logical step in the book of Acts would be? Well, if I'm writing it, and be thankful I'm not, um, it would be that power comes, right? Jesus said power would come, and then power comes. However, we have these verses from 12 to 26 of kind of this interim period. Right? This, this, this period of, of 10 days, really, that is unlike anything ever in history before and anything ever in history after, right? But there's these 10 days that are captured in these verses. Why? Why would Luke, why is there this period of waiting, this period of preparation? See, something we believe about all Scripture is this, from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 is this, that all Scripture is breathed out by God, every bit of this word is God's living word, right? And the purpose is that it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, right? To correct us, the next word, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So every part of scripture, one, is breathed out by God, and secondly, it is for our good. It's so that we might walk in his ways. Every part, including sections of scripture that we come to like we are today. Confusing placements if you just read them on the surface. And oftentimes, scriptures that we just kind of gloss over or read over really quickly to get to Acts chapter two, right? Where the Holy Spirit comes and we wanna see these tongues of fire. But we had better stop and pause and examine God's breathed word and why he would place this here. And the reason he would place this here is because there's something, listen to me, there's something in the disciples. There's something that the disciples need to be prepared for before Acts chapter 2. Before the, the coming of the power of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, there is something that needs to be prepared in the disciples' life. And I would argue, even us on the other side of Acts chapter 2, this must be true. The basics of faith, if you will, must be laid, foundations must be laid in our lives if we're going to properly understand the power and the work in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so let's look at these verses together. And we're going to go through it verse by verse. Verse 12. Then they, that's this group of, of disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which this mount, there were many things, incredible things that happened here, just the ascension, so they're leaving it. And it says, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And so pause, we, we will go kind of faster through this, not much. But um, what we see here is we've just seen the ascension of Christ on this mount, and now we have the disciples left with their mouths open, eyes wide, going, okay, what do we do? And here's what they do. 
the first kind of foundational truth is that they follow the clear commands of Jesus. Did you see this simply right here is this. They went from the mount where they just saw the ascension, right? Back to Jerusalem. Why did they do that? They did that because that is exactly what Jesus told them to do. He said, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to come. So they're going, listen, we're just simply going to do what Jesus told us to do. And so it says that they walked a Sabbath day journey, which was about two-thirds of a mile. And so if you ever see a picture of this, they're up on a mount, and you can see over the Kidron Valley into Jerusalem. And so they were required on this Sabbath day to only walk about 3,300 feet, if you will. And so it's, it's, it's that length from where they were to, to where they find themselves in Jerusalem. You say, well, what's, what's the point here? What the point here, I believe, is this, is that oftentimes we can get caught up in what I call the unrevealed will of God. The unrevealed will of God, right? The disciples didn't know if the Holy Spirit was going to come in a day, in their 3,300-foot journey, if it was going to come in a week, if it was going to come in 10 years. They had no idea, and you want to know why? Because God didn't reveal it. God didn't tell them, hey, this is when it's going to come. But what did Jesus tell them? Go to Jerusalem. And so that's what they do. Listen, Christian, Christ follower, this must be the same in our lives. That what we are called to do is to obey the clear commands of Scripture. We, just like the disciples, it's easy for us to get caught up in this unrevealed, like we're constantly trying to figure out what is it that God's saying that he hasn't said explicitly, right? And here's what what I mean by that is, 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 is the question around, what's God's will for my life? And have you ever asked that? Like, it's a great question. It's fine to raise your hand, right? That is a good, good question. But what we try to answer that with typically is, where should I take this job, right? Should I move to Sacramento? Definitely not Sacramento, but should I go to, you know, somewhere else in Texas, all right? Um, we know God's will is Texas, but um, uh, anyway, I diverge. Um, should I marry this person or that person? And we're looking for God's will. It's like, okay, Tammy, what verse is she on? You know, like, okay, Bobby, Billy, we're looking for, right? And that's not revealed. Or we're looking for these other things that, that, that are not explicit in Scripture. However, what we miss along the way is this. God's revealed will for our lives. God's explicit, clear commands to us as his people, right? Like he doesn't hide the ball for his will for our life, okay? You want to see it? Look at Deuteronomy 10. It says this, and now Israel, or people of God, what does the Lord require of you? What does he want from you? But to fear the Lord, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul. That's God's will for your life. Next verse. And he has told you, O man, what is good, what's right, what's the will of God for your life? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? When you're wondering, what is God's will for my life? Micah 6, 8, like that's, you should turn there and look at it and examine your life because that's God's will for your life. Some of you aren't convinced yet. Next one. And go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is God's plan for you. This is God's plan for his church, right? This is plan A with no plan B, that we would make disciples. We'd share the gospel verbally and with our our lives. Next. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, here's what blows my mind. Like God knew all of this. Before he formed the earth, we're walking through Genesis and the men's study and women's study. Before all of that, he had a plan for your life, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
that we should walk in his ways. And the way that we do that is in the covering of Christ over us, right? It's not our holiness, it's his holiness. Next. Because some of you were like, okay, what, what about will? This says it, for this is the will of God, right? So no question. What follows this is the will of God for your life, your sanctification. And he goes on even a little bit more explicit. You should abstain from sexual immorality. But he's going, you want to know the will of God for your life, believer. It is sanctification. What is sanctification? It's this kind of churchy theological term. It simply means this. is your growth by the spirit of the living God into the image of Jesus Christ. What is God's will for your life? That day by day, moment by moment, you would be being transformed into the image of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. That is God's will for your life. And you say, well, what's that bottom one? He says in 1 Thessalonians 5, listen, rejoice always. What's God's will for your life? Is that you and I would rejoice at all times at the height of joy, right? At the pinnacle of the mountain, we would rejoice. In the valley, where it's really difficult, rejoice. Listen, that only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit being alive in our lives when we are walking in clear-cut obedience to the commands of Scripture before us. What we see in the disciples laying the foundation before the power of the Holy Spirit falls is that they clearly and simply obey the commands of Jesus. He said to go to Jerusalem. We're going to Jerusalem. God called me to walk in holiness. I'm gonna walk in holiness. God told me to love justice. I'm gonna love justice. He told me to walk in humility. I'm gonna walk in humility. He told me to flee sexual immorality. I'm gonna flee and run from it. I'm gonna obey the revealed will of God. See, again, what I think we get caught up in oftentimes, church, myself included, are outcomes. Who, where, what job, what school, what person. And what I've come to realize is God is less concerned with those areas and far more concerned in who we're becoming. If you go look at all of those verses, those are not about outcomes. Those are about internal things and who we are becoming by the power of the Spirit of God. Jesus himself says this, seek first the kingdom of God and then the outcome, that's up to God. He'll add everything else that you need. But what is on us? Seek first God's kingdom. So first we see in verse 12, we don't make it very far. We obey the clear commands of scripture. And then verse 13. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas, the son of James. The emphasis here and scripture does this purposefully, is that all the disciples are named, okay? Because before this, they were all scattered throughout the region. Now what he's doing, Luke is doing, is going, now all of them are back together in one place. So they were scattered, now they've been brought back together. What is it they trying to lay the foundation for? That it is a new community that is going to be formed by the Spirit. So before Acts 2, this community or this group is getting together, Notice how many times in your Bible that they is used. They, they, they did this. They got together. And so listen, what God is about to do in pouring his spirit out is not a private thing. It is a deeply personal thing, yes, but it is not private. They are walking in community together. In fact, there is a new community being formed and shaped here. That's why the writer of Hebrews would say, listen, don't neglect gathering together as some of you are in the habit of doing. 
So what he means by that is this. Your habit is that you should be getting together with the people of God, with the community of God. Like the power of God is made known in community, right? It's not just for you. It's not just for your personal needs. It's for us. And so he lists all these disciples. He puts them they. He puts them all together. We're going to look at the number here in just a second. But they just didn't get together to gather up, right? Just to go, hey, he pulled us in here and we're just going to kind of passively wait. But what does verse 14 say that this group, this new community, what were they busy doing? Look at it. It says, And all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brother. So here you have them obeying clearly the the commands of Jesus. You have them gathering together, and not just gathering flippantly or passively, but gathering with one activity in mind, really at at the forefront. That's prayer. And so you see this group gathering together in one accord. And Luke will use this term a lot. And the idea of one accord is a sense of unity, that there is a supernatural sense of unity among this group. Actually, in the Bible, one accord is used twice. For those who gather as Christ followers in a supernatural unity, in one accord is also used to define those who are against the faith in one accord, that there is, if you will, a demonic sense of unity oppressing and pushing against this one accord. And let me tell you, there is no middle ground in that. You are on one accord or the other. And so here's what we see. We see the disciples gathering in prayer. And what I find interesting about this is, is why would they be doing this? Why would they be, be all of a sudden going, okay, we saw the ascension, let's go to Jerusalem, and maybe let's hold a council, let's, let's, let's talk about when he's going to come back. Is it going to be a year? Is it going to be a week? Is it going to be this? No, they're, they're praying, and here's why I'm convinced they're praying. Why they're praying immediately, and it says that they're devoted to it. Because that's exactly what they saw their rabbi, Jesus, do every time. Anytime there was, there was this wonder or there was this, this needed kind of influx of, 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 of like, man, we need something else, there was this desperation of prayer even out of Jesus, getting with the Father, going, I'm not going a step without the Father's will in my life. There has to be this connection. And so they did what they saw Jesus do. They came before him. They began to pray together. And listen, they didn't know how long they were going to be praying. Once again, you have to understand this time period. The disciples had no idea it was only going to last 10 days. But all they knew was we were going to keep praying and keep praying and keep praying and keep praying and not lose heart. Where did that idea come from? Jesus. Luke chapter 18, where Jesus tells them after discussing the kingdom of God in Luke 17, Jesus tells them a parable, which is a story with a theological point. He tells the disciples, listen, you don't know when the kingdom of God is going to come uh, in in its fullness. You don't know how it's even going to come. But here's what I want you to understand. You need to pray. And he talks about the persistent widow. You remember that parable where she comes before an unrighteous judge, an unjust judge. In, In the Bible, and Luke tells us that this judge, he didn't care about men and he didn't care about God. Read Luke 18. And Jesus tells the story of this persistent widow who had no power in the community, No wealth, no affluence, nothing. She had nothing. The only asset this lady had was her persistence. That's it. And Jesus is painting this picture of her knocking continually over and over. Why did he paint that picture? Luke 18, verse one. Right at the top. And he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect or reason that they ought to what? Always to pray and to not lose heart. Some of you need to be reminded of that because some of you have have lost heart. 
Maybe for some of you, you've just stopped praying because you're like, I've been, I've been praying the same prayer for year after year after year. Listen, the word of God to you this morning is this. Keep praying and don't lose heart. God is not distant. He is not, he is not deaf to hear your prayers. His delay is not, is not a, a sign of his absenteeism. God is present. He is there and he is creating in you and telling you this morning, listen, don't lose heart. Don't lose sight to who I am. And so that's what the disciples do. They commit together to pray and not lose heart. Listen, shameless plug for our corporate prayer on Wednesday nights. Listen, we're gathering for six weeks to just voice our desperation as a community, as a people, 6.30 every Wednesday. Listen, we, we don't just want you there. We need you there. This past Wednesday was incredible. It was just, just a such... Such a sweet presence of God. And listen, some of you are like, it's a prayer meeting. We're just going to pray. Well, listen, we also sing some songs, okay? We ease you in. We take some communion so you can lift up your head, all right? But, but we pray. And we get after it because we follow the words of Jesus going, listen, we want to keep praying. And we want to keep pressing. And we don't want to lose heart. And listen, by the way, you learn how to pray, not by sitting at home hoping that you learn how to pray. You learn how to pray by praying, by coming before God. And so listen, it's not a scary environment by and large, okay? So just come on. This Wednesday, 6.30, six, up, six times. We're not even praying through the end of the year, just six times. Asking God to move and to show up in a real way. And I can tell you this past Wednesday, he did, and it was beautiful. And we don't just want 100, 200 of us to experience it. We want our whole community to be a part of it, a desperate pursuit of God. Listen, the disciples understood this. They got it even before the Holy Spirit was coming. They're going, well, we're going to pray. And we may be praying for the next 30 years, but we're going to do it. We're going to keep pressing. All right, next, verse 15. It said, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And now here's where we get back to 1 Timothy 3, that all scripture is God-breathed. The idea of 120 is not just some arbitrary number, but this idea of 120 would have been for the, for the first century reader an understanding that this was an official council. This was an official group, that God was forming a new community with his spirit there among them. So that's why 120 is, is, is added here. And it said, brothers, this is Peter talking to them, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And now this man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, and that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, and he's quoting Psalm 69 here, may his camp become desolate and there be no one to dwell in it. And here's Psalm 109, let another take his office. So just letting you kind of into, into my study time this week. This is where I'm like, why? Why, Luke? Why would you put this here? Let's get to the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Let's get to the fuel and the fire. Let's, let's go, baby, you know? I'm here, we're talking about Judas, all right? What's gone is gone, let's go. It's purposeful, all right? And that's where the Holy Spirit gives me a swift kick. And it's like, it's purposeful. Be quiet and listen. The purpose here, I believe, is this. Is that Peter, along with the other disciples, before the power of the Holy Spirit, to properly understand the power of the Holy Spirit, they had to first understand the scriptures. 
They had to understand the word of God in its fullness and completeness. That they had to understand as Peter just stood up here and goes, listen, Psalm 109, Psalm 69, guess what? They are about Jesus. They are about fulfilling what God said before the foundations of the earth would happen. And so it's like this aha moment because now Peter has with his gospel instincts this picture of the scriptures. And by the way, he knew the scriptures before. It wasn't that he was reading it for the first time. He knew the Psalms. However, now he knows the Psalms. He knows that they are fulfilled and completed in Jesus Christ. And you say, well, how did he know that? Well, let's ask how we know that. How do we know the depths of these words? How do these words go from just words on a page to actually living words alive in us? And the, the answer to that class is the Holy Spirit. The illumination of the Holy Spirit illuminates the word to us. Hmm. But we're pre-Acts chapter 2. How did Peter know that? Great question. He heard it directly from Jesus himself. Look at this, Acts, or Luke chapter 24. Then he, Jesus, spoke to them and said, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms, must be fulfilled. So here, the disciples, here Peter has it directly from Jesus, and this is why he can have this aha moment to go, listen, all of what we've read and all of what we have seen is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Listen, that is a foundation for us to understand the person and work of the Holy Spirit. We need the Scriptures and the Spirit together that the power of the Holy Spirit is realized and actualized when the word of God is in our lives and before our eyes. This is a beautiful convergence that's oftentimes pitted against each other in different camps, in different areas. But how beautiful is it when these two, the word and the power of the spirit, actually converge and orchestrate and lead our lives as a church and we are empowered and led individually as well. These two things, the word and the spirit, must be present. And Peter here in this interim period is going, listen, guys, all that we've read, all that we will read is about Jesus. It's fulfilled in him. It's made known by him. And listen, church, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit that illuminates the deep truths of God, the hidden things of God, that by the power of the Spirit we see and we go, that's food that nourishes my heart and my soul. Why is that able to happen? Because the spirit of God that is alive in us and in our church. And then finally, and this is where we'll land here, verses 21 through 26. I want you to see this point before I even read it. In preparation for the Holy Spirit, here's what you see, is that they rested in God's sovereign plan. They trusted God. They rested and look at it. Verse 21. So one of them, one of the men who had accompanied and during all the times that the Lord Jesus went in and out from among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. All right. So now they are trying to fill that 12th spot for a disciple right? To fulfill the scriptures, right? To be faithful, to have 12 heads, right? Over the tribes of Israel, right? Like he's, he's, they're doing that together. And notice how they do this. Notice how they go about this. So they've narrowed it down to two guys. And the language I hope you picked up there is those guys have been there the whole time, right? These guys just didn't roll up and were like, hey, we heard, you know, we saw that whole thing, the ascension. Like, 
We'd love to be part of this, right? No, they've been there the whole time, right? They've seen the life and ministry of Jesus. They saw his death. They saw his resurrection and also his ascension. So they have it narrowed down to two guys. Verse 23. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, right? Guy with three names. And then Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. In verse 26, and they cast lots for them and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. And so if we are not careful here, it's going to seem just like the disciples are just kind of rolling the dice, right? They're just going, hey, wherever it falls, it falls, right? But there is a very prayerful and thoughtful understanding that these lots, by the way, that, which are cast, and we don't see this happen after this moment, okay? We see after, we see people, uh, the, the disciples in the church come before the Lord and the Holy Spirit confirms it in them, okay? And so now they're casting these lots to find out where they fall. And what they're saying is, Lord, we trust you. We trust that these lots are going to fall on the man that you want to take the place of Judas, And all throughout this language, what I hope you hear in Peter is him saying from verse 16, right? The scripture had to be fulfilled to verse 24. Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which man you have chosen, right? There is a language to which the disciples are trusting the sovereign plan of God, right? They're being led and they're being orchestrated, but ultimately they are yielding and understanding that God And even this moment, this 10-day period in time, is not outside of his control. That every square inch and every minute of their lives is being orchestrated and navigated by the God of the universe. That even Jesus' death, Peter is going to describe like this in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Look at this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan. Right? Either Peter it's just off his rocker, or he actually believes this. He believes that God is sovereign and in control of everything, including the death of Jesus Christ. Now, I know for some of you that makes you kind of squirm, right? Like God's in control of everything. Like I'm seeing all this chaos. God, God is in control of everything. For others of you, the sovereignty of God, his hand and his controlledness in all things is like a warm blanket, right? And this is where I had to, I had to grow into this as I it, it really labored over the scriptures to see God's sovereignty as a comfort, to see how God is in control of actually every moment and everything in history is in the palm of his hand. That is a comfort to me because listen, in this chaotic world, the one assurance I need is that the God of the universe has not forgotten us that the God of this universe has not turned his back. He's not lost his vision all of a sudden, but he is absolutely moving history forward exactly according to his definite plan toward his kingdom coming. Like for me, that's like, I can breathe. I can breathe in those chaotic moments personally or globally. I can lift my head and go, God, I don't see you. We sang it. I don't feel you, but I trust you. I trust that you are good and you do good. I come back to the scriptures that I wholeheartedly believe that are breathed out by God. And I go, I'm standing on this promise because your word says so. I'm trusting you. 
I'm trusting in your heart. And listen, these guys did it so much so that they cast lots to fill such an incredible role. And they say, God, we know that you have a plan and we're gonna move forward with that plan. Like I could tell you countless stories of people with the only thing that they have to stand. In this church, the only pebble or rock they have to stand on is the sovereignty of God. The only thing left that hasn't been shaken from out underneath them is that God is in control of all things and that's the only thing they can make sense of. I could point to people in this room who that's their testimony, that's their story. Or we could look throughout history at, at, at people like Elizabeth Elliot who lost her husband. Literally the people they were missionaries to killed her husband. And she would make this statement that God never makes mistakes and that suffering is never for nothing. Like, where does that come from? I'm telling you, it only comes from the power of the Holy Spirit alive. That's the foundation being set in these disciples' lives. Or, or Martha Snell Nicholson, and, and her story is, is an incredible story, but she was bedridden, like sick, bedridden entirely for the majority of her life. And her husband would wait on her every day, every day. And that's really how she survived and how she lived. He'd wait on her, just wait. And then God chose and saw fit to take her husband from her. Like pretty instantly he passed away. This bedridden, sickness-stricken woman. And she wrote a poem. She wrote a poem. And I'm not gonna read the whole poem, but she was asking about why God would do this. And she calls her taking, God taking her husband away as a thorn. And listen to the end of her poem. Listen to this. She says this, she says, I learned he, God, never gives a thorn without this added grace. And some of you, when I say thorn, you're thinking of someone or something in your life causing you heartache, causing you pain, struggle, angst. She said, I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace to his children. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. That literally God takes that thing that you're going, what is this? A gift? He goes, a gift. A gift that I use to disclose myself and display myself to you more clearly than ever before. And so listen, in these 10 days, here's what I believe God is doing in the disciples' life. He's showing them himself. That that is the setup to understand fully the power of God coming to them. And now he's saying, as we even prepare to go into Acts chapter 2, now to the disciples, this 120, guys, gals, now you're ready for power. You understand these things of community and prayer. You understand these things of sovereignty. You understand these things of faith and trusting. Now you're ready to be instruments filled with my spirit in my hand, God says. And here's what you and I will see as we navigate the entire book of Acts, that God moves their lives and strips them away and strips them down and kills some of them for their faith, yet they will always have the same message, God is good and he is in control. Listen, that is what happens when we understand the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would press on those areas in, in my heart, in our hearts collectively, 
that we struggle to surrender. Maybe those areas we have been petitioning you for year after year, yet seemingly you're distant and have not answered. God, may this morning by your spirit remind us that we are to keep calling and not lose heart. Strengthen our hearts for those of us who are weary this morning. And God, I pray that just as we prepare to go into Acts chapter two, that you might lay a foundation of faith in this church, that we appropriately and expectantly anticipate your power, long for the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives individually, yes, but for us collectively, so we might witness to the grace and mercy of your son, Jesus. That we might be a community marked differently than every other community in our city, in our neighborhood, in our state. That we would be marked with a dependency and a desperation for God to move and to show up because we have nothing apart from him. God, for those who are struggling with a thorn that you've given. God, I pray that that might be seen as it was for Martha Snell Nicholson, as a gift for you to be seen more clearly. God, you only show us and you only do that by the power of your spirit. God, I thank you for the gift of this church. May we obediently live for your glory this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.